Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. Because the five-year campaign obviously took so long, it means that the coronial inquiry into my brother's death as well has also taken just as long. And while Spithoods, thankfully, have now been banned in legislation, part of me wants to celebrate knowing that other families won't have to experience and other individuals won't have to experience the torture that is Spithoods. A landmark win in the campaign to ban the use of spit hoods in prison and truth-telling and treaty, charting the course for a new shared future. Part of that is about bringing the Victorian population along with us, you know, so that they understand how this state was settled, how some people got rich, how some people were massacred, how hard it was for Aboriginal people when they were moved off their land. And we believe that by creating a space where we can share the truth of the settlement of this state, that people will uh, understand the richness of our culture, the diversity and strength and resilience of our people. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. In 2016, a Four Corners special into the treatment of prisoners in the Northern Territory's Dondale Youth Detention Centre shocked the nation. The documentary contained images of the mistreatment of detainee Dylan Voller. Just 17 years old at the time, Dylan was subjected to a range of punishments over the space of five years, including being stripped naked by guards, gassed and being made to wear a spit hood while strapped to a chair. The expose led to the establishment of the Royal Commission into the Detention and Protection of Children in the Northern Territory just weeks after it was broadcast. One year later, following his release in 2017, Dylan spoke of his experiences during a function held at the University of Technology, Sydney. Here's what he had to say. Well, I was still locked up when Four Corners aired. I watched it thinking that the next day but still be the same. All this stuff will keep going on. Not many people would watch it. And I turned the news on the next day. It was on every news channel on the TV. Only a couple of days after that, there was hundreds, thousands of people marching the streets to um, reach out for all the kids in Dondale and detention centres and myself. It's very powerful. Things that were going on in Dondale had obviously been known before the images came to light. Um, there had been other inquiries into them. But it wasn't until we saw those graphic images that Australians actually took notice of what people were saying was going on there. Dylan, of course, one of the things that happens when you're part of such an intense um, media incident um, is that you become a spotlight. And as Patty says, you've become a real leadership voice amongst young, particularly young Aboriginal people, but the Aboriginal community in general. But, of course... This wasn't a role that you asked for. You found yourself in it. And I think one of the fallouts of being such a public person, whether you wanted it or not, is that everyone feels like they can have an opinion about you. Mm. You're still an incredibly young man. How have you weathered being in the centre of that storm? Where do you get your strength from? I get the strength from people supporting me, showing up um, messages on Facebook, showing up at the rallies, stuff like that, um, and even family support, my sister and my mum being around. 
People do like to put labels on you. How would you like them to see you? Um, just as a young person that made a lot of mistakes when I was younger, but ended up getting out of the system. I think also another thing that's been very impressive about what you've done with this is that um, you've actually used it as a platform to talk about other cases. Is that something that you thought a lot about or has it just happened? No, it's just happened. I felt, I feel like I was voiceless for a long time. No one wanted, I, no one would believe me or no one wanted to do that. And I think there's just too many cases of that happening now and I think that the platform I've got I can use to help other people out. Dylan, what was your reaction when you heard that there was going to be a Royal Commission as a result of effectively that story and that footage? Well, at that time, I didn't really know much what about what a Royal Commission was, and then I started learning. Um, and then I guess it could be good, but at the end of the day, it depends what the government's going to do with the recommendations and stuff like that. You gave evidence at the Royal Commission and obviously they put you through a pretty tough time when you gave evidence. What was it like having to speak out publicly in that way? Yeah, it can be kind of humiliating. I mean, the whole cross-examination, the, the solicitor was just trying to paint the picture that I was a bad kid um, and I did wrong things and I admit that I did. Um, and so it was kind of hard. There was actually no questions or anything about the assaults that happened to me, only what I did from your point of view, when you are feeling hopeful, I mean, as you said before, it does matter what happens, you know, it remains to be seen what, what um, is done and that's really the proof. But from your point of view, when you're feeling hopeful, what would you like to see as a result of this Royal Commission? Well, for starters, the stuff that happened to me not happening anymore. I think better training and officers, stuff like that. Um, when they employ officers, a bit more training and cultural awareness. I mean, all different detention centres are different. I mean, up in the top end, from my point of view, it's pretty much 99% Indigenous people in there. And I think focusing on trying to reach them before they hit the detention centres and the jail system, and also focusing on their plans on when they get released, because at the moment it's just either remand and then you walk out the door with sentence, do six months, you walk out the gate, and that's it, you're on your own. There's no help trying to get a job, so when you walk out, you can walk into a stable job or anything like that or no support ongoing once you're released. There's obviously a lot of talk about alternative programs, whether they're alternative sentencing, diversionary, but also the need for rehabilitation programs. You've been on the program Bush Mob. Can you just tell us a little bit about what those sorts of programs offer a young person? Yeah, Bush Mob really helped me out in my time there. Um, they took me out Bush, um, away from where there's temptations of drugs and alcohol and stuff like that, away from peer pressure, riding horses. And they taught me that uh, to ride a horse, you have to have a trust for the horse and the horse will have to trust you, so it gives you a good um, way of gaining trust. And just the workers there, they come in to do their job and just put 100% into their job. They're always there to talk to the young people, even if they have to come back after hours and stuff like that. Um, make sure everyone goes to school, food, gives you a bit of structure. Yeah, it was a really good program and I think it helps a lot of people out. That's why it's a shame to see the bush, the camp that they had out of bush, have their funding cut. There does often seem to be a pattern that we find programs like that that work and the funding gets cut. Could you just also, when we're thinking about why they're so important, perhaps highlight, obviously it was transformative for you. You would have seen how it changed the other young people around you. Do you share some of that with us as well? Yeah, I mean, not every program... Well, not every person's going to react the same to a program, but I've seen a lot of young people come in there with a the mentality that they don't want to change. 
and come in there and met some of those workers and they put 100% into it and they've come out different. Um, example of it is one of my mates who I was locked up with in Darwin Prison went there car about four weeks before me and now he, wants, he decided to stay down in Alice Springs and he's working full-time down there and just got a change and said it's time to move out of Darwin because all the peer pressure up there and it's not a good environment for him. So he moved out of Darwin and now he's working down there full-time. You've obviously gone through a lot, a lot that other young people don't have to go through being in the spotlight, but you've risen up to it by t- taking on a leadership role, talking for other young families that are, and other young people that have been through difficult situations. And you talk about sort of some of the changes you've yourself have gone through with Bushmob. What's the advice that you give to young, young Aboriginal people, particularly young Aboriginal boys who might be perhaps looking at going down a similar path to the one that you did? You now are in a position to give them some advice. Well, I think young people, when they get locked up, they have that mentality that they're going to be stuck in that cycle. And they think that once they go back, the second time or third time that that's the only way to keep going I think just to have that mentality in your head that that's not where you belong and that there's a life in the community for you but yeah they just have to be committed to making that change and to the peer pressure to say no when people try to take you the other way Dylan Voller there speaking at the University of Technology Sydney event Dylan Voller Speaks Out in 2017 The Royal Commission into the Detention and Protection of Children in the Northern Territory highlighted the potential dangers of some methods used to restrain detainees. In particular, the use of spit hoods and the potential to cause respiratory difficulties was a contentious issue, with the Territory Government arguing the practice was reasonable. But now, South Australia is set to become the first jurisdiction in the country to ban the use of spit hoods in prisons. The state parliament recently passed a unanimous vote in favour of the legislation known as Feller's Bill. It was named after Wayne Feller Morrison, a 29-year-old Wiradjuri, Kokatha and Warangu man who died after being held in Adelaide's Yatala Labor Prison five years ago. At the time, Feller was made to wear a spit hood by guards following an altercation. A recent coronial inquest has heard that he died from sudden cardiac arrest, but the state forensic pathologist said she could not rule out the possibility that he was having trouble breathing. Since his death in 2016, his sibling, Latoya Rule, has been a vocal campaigner for the prohibition legislation, and she joins me now. Latoya, welcome back to the program. How's the family doing at this time? Yeah, obviously at the moment I would say that a lot of us are finding a space that we haven't had before, which is a space just to be alone and also just together as a family and reflect on these last five years. So we're okay at the moment. I was going to say it has been five years of campaigning. How are you feeling about the result? I'm pretty overwhelmed and very, very exhausted. But at the same time, I feel like it's a bit difficult to move forward in terms of what next steps to take. Because the five-year campaign obviously took so long, it means that the coronial inquiry into my brother's death as well has also taken just as long. And while spit hoods, thankfully, have now been banned in legislation, there are still so many unresolved things as a family that we're yet to fight for, I think. So part of me wants to celebrate knowing that 
other families won't have to experience and other individuals won't have to experience the torture that is spithoods. But, yeah, we've got such a long way to go. Just mentioned about how long that coronial inquest has been and it did recently wrap up proceedings. It must have been so difficult and often frustrating for families. I was wondering if you could share what your experience was like going through that. Yeah, so it's been obviously such a long time. On a personal level, I'm so different to where I was five years ago, even a year ago from now. This process has really taken over my life and my whole direction from what I was doing prior is very much more specific towards Aboriginal deaths in custody and these issues and how it affects my family, but obviously other Aboriginal people throughout Australia. So, yeah, I guess in many ways I have more of a hunger and a passion for this area to be able to see further change happen for my mob and obviously throughout Australia. But in many ways, the grieving process still is yet to begin. And as I said at the start, now that we've got the space to finally sit and reflect on what's happened and all the kind of times that we've come up against the state, the multiple different inquiries and processes we've found ourselves having to work through Yeah, it's pretty overwhelming, but I feel really proud of my family for staying this long and for us being so resilient this long. And I know that we can only continue to go forward with other families and find common common ground. Yeah, I just want to thank you for sharing that with us. You know, there's been such an interest in Black Lives Matter and the issue's been had more awareness raised and people understand that the statistics are terrible. And, you know, just listening to you share those insights with us, LaToya, really does help remind us how these are things that have really impacted on families and there are people who are going through really extensive processes and you remind us of of the emotional difficulty of that. So I just want to really thank you for, you know, being so willing to share that with us so that we gain deeper insight into what, you know, I think in the past has probably happened behind closed doors. You know, it's so amazed and inspired by how people keep fighting against the face of such injustice like your family has. It must be very overwhelming. What, well, how do you sustain yourself through those moments? For sure. And there's definitely been a lot of times where I've had to, and my family have had to throw our hands up and just say that today's too hard, you know, and that's completely okay. And I think during the process of doing that and of having to take breaks, really important breaks to self-care, you feel a lot of guilt and shame because you carry so much of, you know, change of what we've seen, even just with the ban on spit hoods, that kind of stuff falls on our shoulders. The success of those movements really fall on our shoulders as families um, because we're sometimes the closest to, obviously, the movements. But something that's gotten me through again and again is just remembering what my brother stood for, what my brother would have wanted, knowing that while I'm sure he would have been saying, you know, incredible work, keep going, keep going, keep going, I know that just on a level as my brother, he wouldn't have wanted me to see me push my life to the point where I wasn't living anymore as well. 
And so just remembering what we're fighting for, like you said, Black Lives Matter, and remembering that we too are those Black Lives That Matter, and for us to continue on the, in the movement and pushing this work forward, we also need to care for ourselves and put up boundaries as well as much as possible, which, again, only five years later now I can say that while I'm in a bit of a rest period. But, you know, that's not always afforded to us in the beginning or ever really. So, yeah, very privileged as well. It's a really important piece of wisdom that you're sharing with us there, LaToya, too, about the importance of us to make those boundaries of, you know, that self-care is actually really critically important if you're going through these really enormous emotional roller coasters, these times of huge grief and processing so much that actually it's a really important thing to to take and uh, to take those steps. So just wanted to pull that out of the, the wisdom of what you're saying. But given also what you've just said about, you know, how that period's been for you. What was it like to be watching the South Australian Parliament the moment that that legislation was tabled? Uh, I was thankfully with my mum, sadly over in lockdown on Gadigal <laughs> land and unable to be in the, in the room in Parliament, but I was with my mum and we did, you know, have a bit of a cry and then I got actually very angry And I didn't expect that because I thought I had dealt with a bit more of my anger toward the first part of when Wayne, you know, died and and the processes, but it constantly comes back. And I was angry because I remember a month before Wayne died alongside people like Uncle Toto and a few other Ghana community members on Ghana land, I was part of organising the rally for justice for Dylan Voller against spit hoods. And I remember just pleading with the government at that stage, a month before Wayne's death, for them to ban spit hoods. And the bill that originally became Feller's Bill that's just passed, at least in the Legislative Council in the Upper House, that bill was put forward two times prior to Feller's Bill by Connie Bonaros, MLC, who's part of SA Best. And just knowing that the government at the time didn't vote in favour of those bills in the Legislative Council made me bitter. It made me bitter because I know that this could have been done ages ago. It could have been done ages ago. So, yeah, I was relieved and, again, knowing that nobody else will have to suffer this torture, but I have to let go of that bitterness now, you know, and um, just remember that we need to move forward and I'm committed to doing that for myself. And of course, acknowledging how much, as you've said, that this, if there's a grieving process that's, that's ongoing, that started and will continue, that you've had a whole series of official processes, but there's a whole range of things that will need to be completed and reflected upon in terms of, of your sibling, of, of your, of your brother's death. I just was wondering, you know, it, it does strike me too that, we see so many people challenge the system and fail to make any headway that amongst everything that you've got to deal with in terms of the the family situation, you actually have been able to drive a significant legislative change that will undoubtedly save lives. And I just wonder, given that we have so few of these wins, what's your advice for people who are out there advocating for change? I mean, of course, don't give up and keep pushing. But 
again, this change didn't come over the last five years. This change has come because of multiple, multiple people who are visible and also not visible to the wider public who supported this legislative change. And so I think the the thing that made me continue and strengthened me the most is just remembering that those people who might come alongside the movement, that they're not always the ones that are most visible, that the ones who you walk through day to day, the ones who you're seeing every single day, the ones who are just sending messages of support here and there, who may not have been, you know, had the opportunity to give financially or in ways that seem big, but the ones that are just encouraging you and sustaining your hope, I think for the most part, those are the ones to remember have been with you since the beginning and let those people strengthen you because they'll continue to be with you past past the work or past the wins. And winning for the ban wasn't a moment in time. Again, it was a process. And I think that's one of my challenges that you and I have both spoken about. I need to, you know, remember the process. Um, and so, yeah, count the wins every single day. Count the people who, you know, otherwise wouldn't have been part of your movement but have come alongside because of your dedication and just keep going. And off the back of, of uh, that recent step forward, what are, what are your plans in terms of further advocacy around this issue of banning spit hoods? So at the moment we're working with another brilliant group of people um, to consider how we can push the spit hood ban into a national ban, but more so alongside of that, really considering discussions around use of force, around state brutality and violence, and how we're kind of cultivating change in a range of spaces that relate to those topics that we continue to see throughout Aboriginal deaths in custody movements, but also just even now in the space of COVID, over-policing and, yeah, there's a lot of work to do, but a national ban is where we can start. Well, Latoya, I just want to thank you for your advocacy. I want to thank you for your generosity in sharing your experiences and your story with us. I can't imagine the toll it must take on you to always have to be talking about these things that are so personal and so emotional, but it's a great gift to all of us in terms of our own learning and understanding that you give voice to them and uh, want to acknowledge that generosity. And thank you so much for being with us this evening on Speaking Out. Thank you always for giving us platform. Appreciate it. Latoya Rule is a campaigner for the prohibition on the use of spit hoods in prisons and sibling of the late Wayne Feller Morrison. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app? And that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Coming up, we profile the incomparable Professor Eleanor Burke, a vocal campaigner for the advancement of Aboriginal education. She's also been instrumental in progressing First Nations rights in a number of key areas, including native title and reconciliation. She'll be joining me shortly to tell us about her latest venture involving truth-telling and treaty. Right now, though, some music. The next track is by Coloured Stone and is called Magic Girl.
Gates coloured stone with Magic Girl. This is speaking out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. In May this year, the Victorian government took a significant first step on a process of truth, healing and justice for its First Nations peoples. The establishment of the Aboriginal-led Uruk Justice Commission began the country's first formal truth-telling process into past injustices committed against First Nations people. Established in collaboration with the First Peoples Assembly, it's designed to operate alongside and complementary to the progression of the state's treaty process. The Commission has been tasked with looking into a broad range of areas, including policing and criminal justice, child protection and family and welfare matters. Professor Eleanor Burke is a Wurdagaya and Wamba Elder and Chair of the Commission. Professor Burke has previously held roles as Co-Chair of Reconciliation Victoria and as a Board Member of Native Title Services Victoria. She's worked to advance Aboriginal education for more than 40 years and she joins me now. Professor Burke, welcome to the program. And since this is the first time we've had the privilege of speaking to you on the show, I thought we'd start by getting to know you a little bit more and ask you where you grew up and what your early life was like. Well, uh, I was born in um, Hamilton, Western Victoria, which is about 100 kilometres from where I now live. That was where my father family property was, but mum was uh, homesick for her family when I was about two and a half. They moved back to the Murray Valley to a property outside Swan Hill in a place called Murraydale, a very small place. I think it's um, in Barapa country there. I'm not 100% sure about a map. I grew up there and uh, being close to mum's family, uh, we were surrounded by her family, she was one of eight siblings and I had uncles and aunts and my grandmother and grandfather all around me in my growing up, which um, was very precious and uh, also gave me a strong sense of my identity uh, in that family and because my grandmother was a storyteller as well to us, children, we um, we le- were told a few things, many of which I can't remember properly now because of when you're very young, it doesn't sink in in the way you wish it had. But until I went to school, I really thought Aboriginal people were the were the people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I often talk about my awakening because first I noticed I was the only brown-skinned child. It was a small school, about maybe up to 40 kids, um, small school with a row per class of primary school. And the second thing that happened was I, I used to get knocked off my bike and pummeled a bit going home uh, from school by a couple of boys and they've just picked on me and it didn't stop until my bigger cousins came and met me and gave them a whack. So <laughs> that that, cha- that changed my view about how other people saw, saw us. But my grandmother was constant in my life, so she she was very strong and proud of who she was. And that really sort of, I suppose, made me feel strong too about who I was while I was, uh, as I was growing, but un- un- puzzled by, you know, the reactions as we got out into the wider world. 
I was obviously, um, you know, I've, I've known you since ever I can remember as, as one of the leaders in the education space and then, of course, well beyond that. But I was also wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, obviously you've just mentioned your grandmother, but you had obviously had such a strong sense of social justice and such a strong sense about the importance of education really early on. And I was wondering if you could share with us who were the people who shaped your worldview and, and kind of inspired you? with those values? Well, well, there's, a, a, I suppose, a number of a, people along the journey, of course. As you know, you meet different people at different stages. But my grandmother was a constant, uh, really, and she lived to be 90. Uh, and those, the grandchildren that had more to do with her have all have that kind of strength of her sense of being Aboriginal, uh, which is interesting and really important to us. But she was born on Ebenezer Mission and she was educated by the uh, Moravian missionaries and it was a good education for the time. You know, she went to, completed what uh, would have been full primary school there. Uh, She was a teenager when they left the mission and went to my grandfather's country. But she believed in education, so she had all of her children go to school when they moved to the Murray Valley and she had her family. And I see photographs of my mother and aunts or uncles where, you know, there are three black children in these black and white photos who probably look like I felt when I went to primary school and had those uncomfortable experiences. But she was she did believe in education and so we had that in our family. It was hard to do at different times, but I think the second influence was when I married and went to Melbourne to live and made contact with the Aborigines Advancement League there, which initially was about social things, but it was easy to get involved with the Aborigines Advancement League in the way it was. It was a kind of place that welcomed people and you could get involved with the um, the uh, management committee, and there I met wonderful women who uh, who's you know who've been mentors for me, people like Auntie Jerry Briggs and Mel Jackamoss and Elizabeth Hoffman and Joycey Johnson, so many women who were just amazing and did amazing things at that time, and you know, I'm talking about in the um, mid-70s and so on, you know, there were things happening. They really imprinted, uh, again, you know, the strength of what people can do together and especially what our women have done for us along the way. So that that was um, this when I got involved in, I suppose, what people would call Aboriginal politics or was able to participate in decision-making on an Aboriginal organisation. It eventually led to my involvement in education, which came, I suppose, around 1976 with the formation of the Victorian VAECG, (laughs) Victorian (laughs) Education Consultative Group, uh, which Colin was setting up at that time uh, when he was in state education. That was the first uh, time I got involved in education and I felt a bit, wasn't sure how I'd go with that. But being on the ground floor, it was a wonderful experience because other things were happening at the national level as well by then in 
education around the Commonwealth Schools Commission report and uh, recommendations from it, the establishment of the National Aboriginal Education Committee, which I had served on both for Victoria and for the ACT. You must be able to look back. I mean, you came in in the 1970s. You and Colin were just such leaders in the space really early on, opening the doors to my generation and those of us that have come along afterwards. When you look back at where we are now to where we are then, what do you think? Well, it's very different, isn't it, uh, now? But at that time, we were pretty focused on things that were missing, you know, the, the fact that uh, you know, our kids weren't coming through the schools that, and, or finishing school, those are the sort of things. We, the fact that we couldn't identify enough teachers at that time and the NAEC had their 1,000 teachers by, I can't remember what date, 1990 I think it was, as a project which was achieved. Most of the people went and worked for the government because there was such a need for Aboriginal involvement in other spaces. But it was um, it was quite exhilarating, really, when you think about it, because uh, those networks were so rich. That's when we met people from other states. That's when we, you know, I met your father, I met people in the Territory, I met people from the West. You know, it was just amazing. And uh, going and living in Canberra, that was the kind of mix that was there as well. So we were living uh, in a time that was quite rich in our relationship building, I would say, across the country. You've also, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, spent significant time in the reconciliation sphere as well. How important is the truth-telling process as part of that? Well, reconciliation, I suppose in some ways you could uh, you could say it's a disappointment, but in, in Victoria it was important because here in Victoria we've had a tradition of non-Aboriginal people working with uh, Aboriginal people for the 1967 referendum through for CATSI and as, as happened in other states, of course, but again those networks were there and Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people working together to make that referendum successful and um, I think we've there's a kind of um, there's a population of people who have that in the, in their family and their knowledge where Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people have worked here and the old Australian Aborigines League had about 30 branches you know which had mostly non-Aboriginal people with Aboriginal people from some of the towns so there's a kind of base there with, that could receive people interested in reconciliation. But the problem with reconciliation on, for my part was that it, it was really about us being reconciled with what was there, whereas we really very quickly got to, you know, wanting to talk about the land we'd lost and having rights about land and then things happened in that space fairly quickly after the Mabo decision and that was never intended to be applicable in Victoria. Well, that's been proven wrong in Victoria where we've got uh, native title, I think at least three mm -hmm. native title uh, determinations positive and, uh, you know, the one negative, the first one, which is uh, we're very, very sad about. So there was so much, you know, when you, when you talk about it now and, and reflect back, there's a lot of different things happening that when we say it in a short 
interview like this, uh, you know, it sounds easy. All those things contribute to each of us making things better, I think. I guess this is a good point to come to the Uruk Commission. Can you tell us more about its role and scope? Yes, well, again, it's the culmination of the last 20 years of this century, really, and being away from Victoria when I came back in 1998-9, Victoria had changed and moved on from wanting land rights. People were identifying themselves by name, which was something that wasn't really, nobody was interested in almost not allowed talking about who we were and come back and we have a land justice group wanting uh, recognition of um, places people came from and wanting to work something out with the government. And that took a little while to uh, settle and the first thing that was a big change was Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council being established to uh, replacing the old archaeological relics acts that existed around the country and that was a big shift because it meant our people would be able to be involved in decisions about things to do with cultural heritage matters uh, on country. Still working for the government though and without any structures but that combined with the native title decisions strengthened the ability of groups be recognised to having status over their places, their country and their sites. But sometimes it was an intervention for governments or, you know, for government's benefits, but it was also good for our people, uh, even though the limitations were perhaps uh, the fact that, you know, we're still in a colonial construct with the kind of legislation that was written uh, and probably without much consultation with our mob. So that was the beginning and other things followed, like the um, the decision, the native title decisions, the first one, 2005, I can't, which was my own group, uh, Beringi Gajan, the known as Wachabalak decision. Others followed. Then we got the state looking at making traditional owner settlements under state legislation. So all of those things were steps to getting to Uruk. And then more in more recent years, the, um, the idea of treaty came up uh, when the Andrews government first came to power and the government was prepared to hear what we wanted to say about that. And that eventually led to the um, Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, which um, was headed by then Commissioner Jill Gallagher, and that was to create a framework about how to go about achieving treaty. And that was another step in this direction. And then the idea was to have an elected body from the whole of the state of Victoria and in uh, electorates to um, work and consult with people about how to proceed with treaty business and in the legislation, the treaty legislation that was developed in that time, there were tasks given to what has become the First People's Assembly as that elected body. And they, in their wisdom and first year's activity last year, were quick to spot that, you know, without truth-telling as a foundation, what, you know, treaty wouldn't be right. So that's how that happened. And the, they persuaded the government to agree to uh, Uruk as a uh, Truth or Justice Commission 
And and here we are with this letters patent, with a very broad mandate and a big, big task in terms of um, uh, establishing public records, you know, sharing with the overall Victorian population and creating systemic change. There's obviously, as you say, there's been a whole lot of steps that have occurred in Victoria to get to this particular moment in terms of truth-telling, and you've mentioned the representative body and the treaty process. I was just wondering what your uh, perspective is on how this movement at the state level in Victoria might have implications for, say, a treaty or a truth-telling process at a national level. Well, that, that's a hard one. Dealing with the Commonwealth, I think, is more complex with the uh, the states and the territories as we've <laughs> seen with COVID. But I think it does fly the flag for other states to, to do things. And as you'd be aware, there is interest in other states for treaty process. My personal view is, that, you know, with the Commonwealth, it's really hard to do anything <laughs> They're still talking about whether or not we should have a voice to the the government in a way, which seems no-brainer to me. I don't know if the momentum can come. It should have come out of the, you know, the Uluru Statement from the heart, but um, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It seems like, you know, in Victoria we've taken over 200 years to get to this and it's way too long. Way too long. In all the progress you are making in Victoria, and it obviously now has become, as you say, it's a bit of a beacon for other states in terms of what's possible. And, you know, as you mentioned, you've had all of these steps at the state level building on a whole lot of advocacy work and hard work. Uh, do you anticipate that, you know, as, as you get to a point where you're actually being able to tell stories that haven't been heard that mean a lot to the First Nations people who are telling them that there might be pushback a- against the process? And how are you anticipating dealing with that? I'm sure there will be pushback. Uh, I mean, we are in Victoria where the media is strong and, uh, we, you know, we already see things uh, every now and again on, you know, Facebook in the papers about, you know, why, why don't we move on, those sorts of things. But, yes, of course, that will be there and we, uh, I think we believe in the justice of what we're doing as Commission. We're all very strong and very committed to um, delivering the objectives of, um, of our letters patent and part of that is about bringing the Victorian population along with us, you know, so that they understand, they understand how this state was settled, how some people got rich, how some people were massacred, how hard it was for Aboriginal people when they were moved off their land uh, and dislocated from place. But we've still survived. We want to share all of that. And we believe that by creating a space where we can share the truth of the settlement of this state, that people will uh, understand the richness of our culture, the diversity and strength and resilience of our people. Well, thank you so much for being with us this evening, Professor Burke, Auntie Eleanor, so respected in so many realms, and it's such a privilege to talk to you, to hear your thoughts, your inspiration, and to celebrate your leadership. Thank you so much. Thank you, Larissa. It's lovely hearing your voice too. I hope we get to catch up sometime down the track. Oh, me too. I'll look forward to that. 
Professor Eleanor Burke is the chair of the Uruk Justice Commission of Victoria. To take us out tonight, some new music from Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. Here they are with Nothing I Can Do. To get your attention
That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.